The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, you are listening to Nudge with me, your host, Phil Agnew. Now on Nudge, we take a look at the world of behavior science to better understand why people make decisions and what makes someone more convincing. In today's show, we're looking at something all of us do, but not many of us think about. It's around making numbers sound compelling. Let me give you an example. A few weeks back, a friend and I were chatting about billionaires. She mentioned how the actual amount of wealth a billionaire has is really difficult to grasp. We think, sure, billionaires are rich. Sure, they're richer than millionaires. But how much richer? I didn't really know. A lot more is what I guessed, but I couldn't really give a specific amount. And then I came across this thought experiment. Imagine you and your spouse entered a lottery. If you win, you must spend £50,000 of your prize money every single day until it runs out. You win a million pounds, but your spouse wins a billion pounds. Now, as a millionaire, you'll soon realise that your runaway consumerism is surprisingly short. If you're spending 50 grand every day, you will actually run out of cash after just 20 days. But for your billionaire partner, their resources will hold out for a little bit longer. They will have a full-time job spending £50,000 a day for 55 years. So I knew that a million was smaller than a billion, but until I heard this thought experiment, I never really understood the difference. And this is a problem. Not that failing to understand how rich billionaires are is an issue. I mean, that is an issue, but it's a separate one. The issue is that it's really difficult to help people understand the meaning behind numbers and to help communicate the impact of numbers. All of us share numbers every day. In a work setting, they're everywhere. We are constantly debating over data and making decisions with charts. We all use and share numbers, but few of us know how to share numbers in a convincing way. That's what today's guest is here to help with. Carla Starr has written for Popular Science, The Atlantic, Slate, and has appeared on CBS Sunday Morning. She's obsessed with finding a better way to communicate numbers. So together with Chip Heath, she wrote a book called Making Numbers Count. In today's show, she'll share her best tips for making numbers count. She starts by explaining how much professionals struggle to share numbers. Ronald Reagan is a famed communicator. As United States president, he had a team of scriptwriters to help him get his points across. Yet when it came to numbers, he, like the rest of us, struggled. When trying to describe the USA's growing debt, he used an example. He said, if you stacked our debt as dollar bills, it'd be 67 miles high. That's right, he said, if you stacked our debt as dollar bills, it'd be 67 miles high. Now, here's why that's not a great example. Well, because that is not the way that we measure money. 
you know, nobody goes, we don't have this kind of intuitive knowledge of how high dollar bills should be stacked. You know, we don't go around, you know, at the grocery store thinking, okay, so, you know, we, oh, we need to buy this piece of fruit. You know, this is a stack of quarters, half an inch high. <laughs> and also, so there are two things going on. Um, number one, height. That is not something that's really intuitive to a lot of people, unless maybe you're, you know, in interior design or construction or real estate or something. Uh, you know, I think people, they use their own height as a benchmark, you know, and then beyond that, it's like, I have maybe a good idea of whether or not a man is around six feet tall, <laughs> but beyond that, it's just kind of a shot in the dark. I have no idea. Stating that America's debt is 67 miles high isn't helpful because we don't really know what it means. We know it's a lot, just like we know a billionaire earns a lot more than a millionaire, but it doesn't really help us understand the scale. But height isn't the only problem with Reagan's analogy. Um, So height is really bad, but then just intuitively, we do not, it's not how we measure money. You know, no one has ever gone through their budget or their, you know, their bank account and said, oh, I really wish I hadn't spent those, you know, two inches (laughs) worth of $5 bills the other week. That just makes no sense. So I I think that, you know, for him to say that, really the only point that he wanted to get across was, that's a lot of money. And sure, he got that point across, but not in a way that helped people really understand how much money it was. So I asked Carla, if Reagan had another chance, how should he describe one trillion in debt? I think if he wanted to get across the idea that, oh, the debt is higher now than it ever has been, you know, I think it could have been useful to talk about, you know, oh, the debt has grown, you know, maybe it has doubled in the last, you know, however many years. And then, and that way he could have emphasized the difference or the speed or the rate of increase. Carla suggests another way to improve Rogan's speech in her book. She suggests that breaking the figure down per person will help people conceptualize the size of the debt. So instead of saying $1 trillion, you could say the debt is $4,000 per person. In the UK, you could say that the UK's national debt is currently $1.2 trillion, or you could say that the UK's national debt is £32,000 per citizen, and that includes infants, children and retirees. Personalising numbers, making it clear what it means for the individual, makes them more effective. Here's Carla explaining why. I mean, I think, you know, we're all kind of self-interested in a way. And we all, you know, we want to know like what's in it for us. You know, I think just small things like, you know, geography, right? So we have this example in the book of like the importance of using perspective sentences when discussing size. Um, So, you know, an example would be, you know, Ukraine is this big or, you know, Ireland is this big, you know, square kilometers. What does it actually mean? You know, in the United States, you would say, oh, well, it's, you know, it's about to Pennsylvania is big, right? But if you're in Europe or, you know, APAC region, it would be, you know, you could frame that size in terms of like a country that is closer to you. Those frames of reference are intuitive to people. Like those are the things that they just kind of like know instinctively. Carla gives another brilliant example of a perspective sentence in her book. Now, this example was used by British charities to help people understand how much Kenyans have to spend on food. See, in the UK, the amount we actually spend on food alone is quite small. We've got a fair bit of disposable income left after we do our weekly food shop. But in Kenya, that's not the case. 
So you could say average earnings in Kenya are about $7,000 per year compared with £32,000 in the UK. Yet Kenyans spend almost 50% of their income on food. But Brits will struggle to remember that. So Carla suggests tweaking the message. Instead, it should be, if you spent the same portion of your weekly income on food as Kenyans do, seven days worth of eating would cost you £312 for dishes like cornmeal, porridge and potato pea mash. How easily could you pay your other bills if food sucked up that much of your resources? Now, a message like this helps you move away from the raw numbers and actually see the issue through your own eyes and empathise with the problem. Here's another example from the book. Say you're giving a talk on mental health. Most people will opt to give the actual data and say, there is a 20% chance of experiencing a mental health issue in a given year and a 50% chance of being diagnosed with a mental illness in your lifetime. But Carla suggests using a perspective sentence and instead say... For every five people, one of you will be diagnosed with a mental illness this year. And at some point in your lifetime, either you or the person across with you will be diagnosed with a mental illness. It's a simple, subtle change to make the number more impactful. But so many organisations fail to use these principles. So I was actually just doing some some work on this particular thing um, for a workshop I'm doing. And there was this article in the New York Times recently about a suicide hotline. Um, And so their example was, you know, of approximately 2 million phone calls to the lifeline last year, about 70% were abandoned before a caller could get help. So 17%, you know, what exactly does this mean? So my number translation was nearly one in five calls to the suicide hotline were abandoned before a caller could get help. That's the population of Honolulu, Hawaii. (laughs) Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. One of the main points Carla makes in her book is that humans haven't evolved to deal with numbers. It's not something we've used up until very recently in our development as a human species. So our brains have never really developed a way to conceptualise numbers. That's why Carla says it's so important to translate numbers into concrete examples, examples you can visualise. So instead of a COVID sign saying to keep two metres apart, you could say keep one bicycle apart. Here's Carla with another example. So there's another example in the book. 97% of the Earth's water is salinated. Of the remaining fresh water, 
almost uh, 99% of it is trapped in like underwater or is polluted or it's trapped in glaciers, leaving only 0.007% of the Earth's water to drink. Compared to, if you put all of the Earth's water into a gallon jug, humans would only be able to drink the last few drops. Now, I actually saw, I remember when I was a kid, it was Earth Day, and I was watching TV, and I remember very clearly seeing this Earth Day special on TV, and I still, I still remember... I have this image of this woman like pouring out all this water into a gallon jug as she was saying that. So that image stuck with my mind, um, you know, for my entire life. And I remember when we were writing the book and I thought, oh, this would be a great example because I remembered this for like 30 years. These examples stick with us because they link the number to something concrete that we can visualize. As Carla shared this, I was reminded of a similar story where data stuck in my mind because it was transformed into a concrete example. I'm not sure where I read it, but this example was about the carbon emissions generated through flying. To get the point across, the author didn't simply say how much carbon a short-haul flight from London to Madrid would use. Instead, the author translated it into something concrete, saying that deciding to fly between London and Madrid generates the same amount of emissions as not recycling for two years. That example stuck in my mind because it was something I could visualise. Carbon emissions, they're not really visual, so I can't visualise them. But recycling is something I do every day, separating plastics, cleaning glasses, taking the recycling out. Not doing that for two years, well that's something I can picture and it makes it more memorable. Carla had another example which is similar to this. One that didn't make it into the book was, you. it takes so much water to produce the beef in one hamburger as same amount of water as two months worth of showers. One of the reasons for this is due to something called the concrete phrase effect. This is the idea that concrete phrases are more memorable than abstract phrases. To help prove this, I'm going to do a little test, a little experiment with all of you listening. I'm going to read out 10 phrases and you have to remember as many phrases as possible. Don't write them down. Just try and keep them in your head and recall how many you remember. Okay, here you go. Here are the 10 phrases. Square door, impossible amount, rusty engine, better excuse, flaming forest, apparent fact, muscular gentleman, common fate, white horse, subtle fault. All right, give yourself 10 seconds. Give yourself a bit of time. Which ones do you remember? Which of those phrases come to mind? Okay, now the chances are you remembered phrases like square door, rusty engine, flaming forest, muscular gentleman, and white horse. And the chances are you probably didn't remember the phrases impossible amount, better excuse, apparent fact, common fate, and subtle fault. That's because the concrete phrases, which was the first set of phrases I read you, they're just more memorable than abstract phrases. In tests using this exact experiment, Richard Schotten found that people are 10 times more likely to remember concrete phrases over the abstract phrases. There's an easy lesson for marketers here. Use terms that people can visualise and they'll be more likely to be remembered. There's an easy lesson for marketers here. Use terms that people can visualise and they'll just be more likely to be remembered. A great application of this is how Apple launched its iPad and how their marketing compared to their competitors. 
See, Philips was one of the leading MP3 providers at the time, and in their ads, Philips spoke endlessly about the MP3 in the abstract. Their ads were titled MP3 in Full Motion, the 258 megabyte card digital audio player. That was literally the title and subtitle of their ad for their MP3, and it's all in abstract language. Here's what Apple went with. They went with something concrete. They said, say hello to iPad, a thousand songs in your pocket. There's no prizes for guessing which MP3 player won in the long run. It's down to many different things, but that concrete phrase definitely helped. So just to recap, perspective sentences and concrete phrases can help your numbers stand out. But that is not all. Carla says that anchoring is important too. Anchoring, as many of you know, is a cognitive bias that means when information is scarce, we're largely swayed by the anchor we're presented with. Here's Carla with an example. There was another example. So the idea of anchoring, so with the um, the whole drops of water, one of the gallon jug, um, another way that I translated that, which did not make it into the book for whatever reason I won't get into, but okay, so... If you look at how much water we have on Earth versus how much we can actually drink, that is the equivalent of just imagine that you make $75,000 a year and yet you can only spend $5 a year. By anchoring the percentage of water we drink to a different point of reference, salary in this case, we're able to better understand it and we're more likely to remember it. And Steve Jobs was a master at anchoring. He'd use it obsessively during his keynotes to help journalists fully understand the latest innovation Apple were bringing to market. During the Apple MacBook Air launch, he didn't say that the Airbook was 0.7 inches thick. That wouldn't have stuck in anyone's mind. So instead, he used an anchor. He loaded up the dimensions of the Sony TZ behind him. At the time, the Sony TZ was the smallest laptop on the market, so he smartly used that as the anchor. He said, The dimensions of the TZ ranges from 1.2 inches to 1.8 inches. Our MacBook Air beats that on average by half an inch. He finished by saying, The thickest part of the MacBook Air is still thinner than the thinnest part of the TZ. By anchoring the size of his laptop, he got journalists in the room to appreciate the innovation. Without the anchor, it would have just seemed like any old thin laptop. I'll finish up with one final tip from Carla. She says, to make your numbers really memorable, use an encore, a surprise ending that captures attention. Here's Carla explaining how difficult it is to win the Powerball, which is the lottery as it's known in the US. Okay, right. So the other winning Powerball, right, it's like about one in 300 million. Or imagine having to guess which date someone is thinking of any date between January 1st, the year one, or September 18th in the year 2667. If you match, you win the lottery. However, just as they are about to hand you your check, there is one more hurdle. There are 300 envelopes on the wall. If you don't pick whichever holds your check, you receive nothing. (laughs) You could say the odds of winning the Powerball is 1 in 292 million. Or you could ask someone to guess a single date between January 1st, year 1, and September 18th, year 2667. 
And then if they've happened to pick the right date, well, then they have to pick an envelope from a box of 300. And if you're lucky enough to get the right envelope, well, then you can win the lottery. That example works because of that encore. That final twist helps capture the imagination. It's hard enough to pick a random date in 2,000 odd years, but then picking an envelope out of 300, well, that just seems impossible. I'll finish with an example of how you could use this. Say you are the marketing director for Romeo Santos, a Latin pop singer and songwriter. How could you convince the Rolling Stones magazine to put him on the cover? You could say he sold back-to-back 5,000-seater shows at the Yankee Stadium. Maybe that would work, maybe not though. Or you could say what Larry Roffer from the New York Times wrote about this feat. Roffer said... Pink Floyd's The Wall couldn't do it. Jay-Z needed help from Justin Timberlake and Eminem to do it, and Metallica didn't try. Selling out consecutive shows at the Yankee Stadium with its capacity of roughly 50,000 is nearly impossible for any pop music artist not named Paul McCartney. But Romeo Santos, who will perform there Friday and Saturday night, is about to achieve that feat. We're led to believe that data dictates decisions, that to convince someone you just need to show them the stats. But examples from MacBooks to pop stars show that to make numbers count, you have to add a bit of behavioural science to your communication. Okay, folks, that's all we have time for today. I really hope you've enjoyed today's show. I had really good fun putting it together and I've learned heaps about the science of communicating numbers along the way. If you want to learn more, the first thing you should do is go and read Carla's book, Making Numbers Count. There's a link to that in the show notes, so go and check it out. Carla also writes a newsletter and hosts workshops on this topic. If you're interested in those, go take a look at the links in the show notes. Now, to finish, I could tell you that a thousand of you have signed up to the Nudge newsletter, and you should too. But in working on this episode, I've learned that that might not be the best number to give you. So instead, I'll let you know that to transport all Nudge newsletter subscribers, you'd need 14 four-door cars, seven double-decker buses, and one Boeing 747 plane. Surely, if that many people subscribe, the newsletter is worth checking out, right? Well, if you do, you'll get access to weekly behavioral science tips in your inbox and nothing else, no spam, no ads. So please do go and check it out if you are interested. The link to sign up is in the show notes. Okay, folks, that's all from me. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Nudge.